The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 411. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all the social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Where you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll, 10 Myths of American History, you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. You can also purchase a class there. I've got over a dozen and more coming this year, four more coming this year. So, I mean, we're going to have over 20 classes there probably by the end of the year. I mean, this is going to be amazing. So all those, every time you purchase a McClanahan Academy class, you get great content, stuff that you're not going to get anywhere else, and you support this podcast and keeping it free of charge. So that's a win-win you get that free class, too. I mean, this is awesome stuff. So you're going to want to do that. Plus, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can get a book plate from that support tab. So if you want my autograph on one of my books, just click on that. Purchase a book plate. I send you an autograph. Purchase one of my books. Another great way to support the show. I've got a number of those out. My latest Southern Scribblings is awesome. There's going to be more this year, so you're going to want to get those books. I mean, that also helps support the show. Of course, clicking on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com helps support the show. You can get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. Going to Learn True, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom, another place where I teach with Tom and a whole bunch of other great instructors, another way to support the show. And the best way you can do it, though, if you don't want to give any financial contribution, and I understand times are tough, you don't want to do any of that, you can share it around on social media. Rate it wherever you get your podcasts. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting lo- locally. Let people know this podcast is one of your favorites. That way we get more people thinking this way. We get more people interested. And we grow the audience. Now, this particular show, again, is going to focus on a book. I did it for the last one in Lincoln's Mercenaries. And I'm doing it for this one, too. This book has gotten a lot of press. It's entitled How to Hide an Empire. A History of the Greater United States by Daniel Immerwar. Now, Immerwar is a professor at Northwestern University. And so when you're going to read this book, because of the modern historical establishment profession, you're going to get just beat over the head with race. I mean, that's the main part of the book. It's about how bad the United States has been in terms of race relations. But what you also get out of this is proof, and I think that Immerwar has done yeoman service here. There's others. Those other people have done this as well. But M.O.R. has done a great service to the right for the anti-intervention, America first, anti-war right with this book. Because he's shown that the United States is an empire. And so what he does is rather interesting. He takes a map of the United States and he says, look, you think about in your mind right now, if you're listening to this podcast, you're watching it, Think about a map of the United States. Conceptualize that and think about what that means. He says, okay, he calls that the logo map because I guarantee what you conceptualize was the lower 48 states. 
Maybe you thought of a map with Alaska and Hawaii. And he said, that's what everybody thinks of. But that's not the United States. The United States is huge in terms of territory. And while it may not be actual colonies, we just stop calling it that. They are colonies. Anywhere you have American influence is a colony. And so I want to read part of the introduction to this book. And he says, looking beyond the logo map. That's what he calls the chapter, this little introduction. And I mean, it's, it's fantastic. If you think about people like Pat Buchanan, he mentions Pat Buchanan by name in this. He also mentions Howard Zinn, who's a leftist anti-imperialist. But you think about these people, but you think about Buchanan in 1992. He gives his very famous culture war speech at the Republican convention. He then runs for president of the Reform Party. This is, look, Pat Buchanan was saying a lot of the same things Donald Trump was saying in 2016 when he was elected. Buchanan just said it better. Trump was just much more popular. Trump, remember, ran on the Reform Party as well. So did Pat Buchanan. They both re- ran on the Reform Party. And uh, I think they share a similar worldview when it comes to foreign policy. Though Trump, of course, the, the look, the problems of the executive branch are the same thing that Jefferson ran into when he got in office. And that's it's this is monster. And you can't necessarily go in ideologically and change it on the turn of a dime. It just won't happen. And so now Biden is trying to boot out all of Trump's people. He's going back in with the war party. I mean, it's all back, right? Trump was an aberration. And I don't know if we'll ever see anything like that again because the war party has so much power and influence. If you don't think the war party and all these special interest groups that were out there funneling money into defeating Donald Trump because Donald Trump presented, at least theoretically, a wrench And their plans for globalization. You're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself. Donald Trump was a real problem for them. Now, it's not to say Donald Trump did a great job. But at least rhetorically, he was a problem for them. Because American foreign policy throughout much of its history has been a little different than what we've gotten in the last 100 plus years. Now, M.O.R. says that we've always had an imperialist foreign policy. And he goes back... And he looks at American expansion uh, in the antebellum period. He talks about California and all kinds of things that were happening there. He says, look, this is, this is bigger than just... Uh, and, and he would say that it's, it's false to believe that Americans didn't want some type of empire. I mean, Jefferson mentioned it. One thing he, he does, he's a little inconsistent in some areas. And at one point, Daniel Boone's not that important. But then he becomes really important. Uh, and there's, there's this little inconsistency there, but... You know, George Rogers Clark in the American War for Independence um, was certainly filling out American territory for Virginia, not for the United States, but for Virginia. This is why Virginia could give up its land session and say, this is it. This is all we really need, because every other state tried to claim it, but they couldn't. This was all Virginia land. It's what we consider to be the Midwest today. That was all Augusta County, Virginia at one point. That's why Virginia is so important. But I want to focus more on the 20th century and 21st century because that's where we're living now. I mean, look, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Madison, Monroe, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, William Henry Harrison, John Tyler. We'll skip over Polk because he was a little different, but Zachary Taylor, Millard Fillmore, all of these people... 
at least, again, rhetorically, gave an impression of American foreign policy that was the antithesis of what we're seeing now with these vast alliance systems and everything else in an American empire. They were all, at least rhetorically, against empire, even if they did try to acquire territory. But their vision was generally locked into the 48 contiguous 48 states, what we see now. Though William Henry Seward, as he points out, was interested in overseas colonies long before he became Secretary of State and acquired Alaska. See, the Republican Party had a big hand in American imperialism. They just don't want to tell you that. But it was William Henry Seward who acquired the first real overseas possession, and that was Alaska, even before that. I mean, we're looking at picking up islands here and there, uninhabited islands. Well, he has a chapter on here on on guano, because how important fertilizer was for the South in particular to get that guano. Um, And how there was an effort made to try to acquire islands that had large concentrations of guano on it, bird and bat droppings. But regardless... I'm going to get into this, this some of this, some of this book, this introduction, because it's really good. I'm just going to focus on a few pages of it, and then you get the gist of the book. And I think you're going to want to go out and get it. Again, you got to wade through some of the leftist historianship here, the the establishment stuff, all the racial things. But outside of that, there's some real gems in this book that I think, uh, you know, Stephen Kinzer is very good to read about these things. And I've done a podcast on Kinzer before. Uh, and he's written some some really good stuff on American imperialism. But uh, this book is good as well because it does bring a lot of things together. He says, The proposition that the United States is an empire is less controversial today, and he's talking about from the 1940s when people would say, no, no. Now, I will say personal experience, it depends on your audience. I uh, often tell a story. I had a two stories, really. I applied for a job at a university, and I was asked to give a presentation. And the presentation, the time I was asked to give a presentation for was the late 19th century. And I went in and gave a standard late 19th, for me, standard late 19th century election, uh, a, a presentation which focused on American imperialism. And I used that term. Came to find out, come to find out later, that was the reason I wasn't hired, because they thought I was, this is weird, I was too hard on the United States. And then uh, there was another episode where I would teach, again, after I was hired where I, you know, in uh, my full-time job, I was teaching a, a, a lecture on American imperialism again. And I have a whole bunch of military students here. And I have oftentimes, sometimes soldiers, but a lot of times the wives of soldiers will come and take classes. And so I had a wife. And she went home and discussed my lecture with her husband, who was in the military, and he got very upset. Called me all kinds of leftist names and all these things. Because I was critical of American foreign policy. I'm not critical of the military, per se. I mean, these people are given orders, and they go do what they're told to do. I did talk about that in the last presentation, how what there are some downsides to that. But regardless... This, she came to me and said, gosh, my husband was very upset with your lecture because uh, you have, in class, she said this, you know, you have, it, it, he, he didn't like the way this sounded. So, but I've never, 
uh, I've never backed off from teaching that kind of lecture because I think Americans need to hear it. And I often ask my students, you know, what is an empire? Is the, is the United States an empire? And so they go out and they find the Webster definition of empire, which, inquires an em- which requires an emperor or in, an imperial situation. They think of Darth Vader. They say the United States is not that. But as Emmawar is saying here, well, it's less controversial today, though people still don't like to accept it. He says, the leftist author Howard Zinn, in his immensely popular People's History of the United States, wrote of the global American empire and his graphic novel spinoff called A People's History of American Empire. On the far right, the politician Pat Buchanan has warned that the United States is traveling the same path that was trod by the British Empire. In the vast political difference between Zinn and Buchanan, there are millions who would readily agree that the United States is at least in some sense imperial. The case can be made in a number of ways. The Dispossession of Native Americans and relegation of many to reservations was pretty transparently imperialist. Then in the 1840s, the United States fought a war with Mexico and seized a third of it. Fifty years later, it fought a war with Spain and claimed the bulk of Spain's overseas territories. Empire isn't just land grabs, though. What do you call the subordination of African Americans? In W.E. Du Bois' eyes, black people in the United States look more like colonized subjects than like citizens. Many other black thinkers, including Malcolm X and the leaders of the Black Panthers, have agreed. Uh, one thing I'll say also about, you notice he, he, he talks about the American Indians, but um, the great essay, The Colonization of the United States by Spain in 1898 by William Graham Sumner. I mean, that's a libertarian position now, but the libertarians have long been on this. Look, we've got an empire. We need to own up to it, because that's dangerous for American liberty and security. Or what about the spread of U.S. economic power abroad? The United States might not have physically conquered Western Europe after World War II, but that didn't stop the French from complaining of coca colonization. Critics there felt swamped by U.S. commerce. Today, with the world's businesses dominated in dollars and McDonald's in more than 100 countries, you can see they might have a point. So economic imperialism, dollar diplomacy, wherever the dollar goes, we go. And of course, we establish colonies or economic colonies. There's a whole idea of the open door policy in the late 19th century. Now, I talk about all this, just a plug one thing. I talk about all this in my McClanahan Academy U.S. History 2 course, if you want to get that. I mean, it's an awesome class, plus I get into it in Reconstruction and Recreation. I talk about American Empire. Because I think it's an important thing to talk about in relation to the Republican Party in particular. I had a student one time from Romania tell me that uh, communism fell in Romania in 1989, 1990, 89, in that area. They were all excited because they thought, my gosh, this is the, I mean, we're going to see the skies open and this is going to be wonderful. And she said all they got out of that was uh, disco music cowboy movies and or it said rap music cowboy movies as well and drugs so i mean these are the things that came out of america we're exporting this culture this destructive culture in a lot of ways mainstream hollywood culture to other parts of the world and so, i mean in some cases they love it but that's what they think america is because of our pop culture they think that's america and we all know if you're listening to this podcast that's not the case but they think this one. That's why thinking locally is so important because that's globally. That's America globally. Cowboy movies, rap music, and drugs. That's America globally and also 
you know, some other less savory parts, I should say, of American culture. Then there are the military interventions. The years since the Second World War have brought the U.S. military to country after country. The big wars are well known, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, but there are also, have also been a consistent stream of smaller engagements. Since 1945, U.S. armed forces have been deployed abroad for conflicts or potential conflicts 211 times in 80, I'm sorry, in 67 countries. Since 1945, 211 times. Now think about that. That's not even 100 years ago. We're looking at 80 years, not even 80 years ago. 75 years ago, so 211, 75, that's you know, one country a year in several engagements, almost three engagements a year, a year, three engagements a year. Call it peacekeeping if you want, or call it imperialism. But clearly this is not a country that has kept its hands to itself. This is why the establishment hated Donald Trump so much. When you say America first, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, we can't have a situation where we're not involved everywhere. We're not leading. We're not... I mean, the Europeans want us to lead. That because it's because it takes the pressure off of them. When Donald Trump said, "You got to pay your fair share of NATO," why do we even have NATO to begin with? There's no Cold War anymore. What's the point of all this? It's so we can prop up these European economies and prop up their militaries and spend money in Europe. You look at the bloated 1.9 trillion dollar coronavirus relief package. There's foreign aid in that. Well, what's that there for? Well, because the empire requires it. It requires it. Yet in all the talk of empire, one thing that often slips from view is actual territory. Yes, many would agree that the United States is or has been an empire, for all the reasons above. But how much can most people say about the colonies themselves? Not, I would wager, very much. And why should they be able to? Textbooks and overviews of U.S. history invariably feature a chapter on the 1898 war with Spain that led to the acquisition of many of the territories in the Philippine War that followed, The worst chapter of any book, one reviewer griped. Yet, after that, coverage trails off. Territorial empire is treated with an episode rather than a feature. The colonies, have been, having been acquired, vanish. It's not that the information isn't out there. Scholars, many working from the sites of empire themselves, have assiduously researched this topic for decades. It's just that when it comes time to zoom out and tell the story of the country as a whole, the territories tend to fall away. The confusion and shoulder-shrugging indifference that... Mainlanders displayed at the time of Pearl Harbor hasn't changed much at all. Ultimately, the problem isn't lack of knowledge. The libraries contain literally thousands of books about U.S. overseas territory. The problem is that those books have been sidelined, filed, so to speak, on the wrong shelves. They're there, but so long as we've got the logo map in our hands, they'll seem irrelevant. They'll seem like books about foreign countries. I mean, that's a beautiful statement. I want to get to the end of this. He says, the history of the greater United States, as I've been told, as I've come to review it, the greater United States, so he's adding colonies in there, can be told in three acts. The first is westward expansion, the pushing west of national borders and the displacement of Native Americans. That isn't the main story of this book, but it's a launching point. Even this well-known history reveals unfamiliar aspects once we look at the past with territory in mind such as the creation of the 1830s of a massive all-Indian territory, arguably the United States' first colony. So he's talking about, of course, the Indian Territory in Oklahoma. What's interesting about that, and he doesn't really get into this, is how that territory during the war was offered statehood by the Confederacy in return 
of course, for support. And many of the tribes did. And of course, they were abused by the Union during Reconstruction. In fact, when you get to Reconstruction, and you even talk about the war itself, Lincoln's activities in the Old Northwest and hanging 38 Sioux warriors for refusing to convert to Christianity, essentially. Uh, also, uh, the look at uh, what the, the reservation system established by radical Republicans in an effort to make these people more like Americans. That was the whole point of the missionary impulse. Everything dealing with the tribes in the West was to make those who Americanize them. It was a form of cultural imperialism. Whereas people like James J. Hill will work out treaties with tribes to try to put his line through there, the government just sent in the army and cleaned them out. So there's a, a vastly different perspective and also uh, design when it comes to how private individuals and, and non-private individuals, government, for, of course, dealt with the tribes in the West. But because those tribes supported the Confederacy, they were abused by the Union Army during Reconstruction. And you can make a case, you know, I think he does make a, a pretty good case. That, that that was a form of imperialism, without question. And, and of course, the poverty and other dislocation and reservation system, I mean, this is horrible. It's horrible stuff. The second act takes place off the continent, and it's striking how quickly it begins, just three years after... Filling out the shape of the logo map, the United States annexed, started annexing new territory overseas. First, it claimed dozens of uninhabited islands in the Caribbean and the Pacific. Then Alaska in 1867. From 1898 to 1900, it absorbed the bulk of Spain's overseas empire and annexed the non-Spanish islands of Hawaii, Wake Island, and American Samoa. In 1917, it bought the U.S. Virgin Islands. But the Second World War, the territories made up a nearly a fifth of the land area of the greater United States. So 20% of the land of the United States was, if you could put it there, that size. We had territory. We had colonies. The Philippines being a huge colony. This sort of expansion was typical for the, of the 19th century and early 20th centuries. When countries got more powerful, they generally got bigger. One might have expected then the United States would keep growing. Indeed, by the end of World War II, it had claimed a lot of territory. Its specific empire had been reclaimed. It held thousands of military bases around the world, and it occupied parts of Korea, Germany, and Austria, and all of Japan. Adding up the land under U.S. jurisdiction, colonies, and occupations alike, by the end of 1945, the United States included some 135 million people living outside the mainland. That's huge. Huge imperial territory. But what's remarkable is what happened next. Rather than converting its occupations to annexations, as it done as it had after the 1898 war with Spain, it did something virtually unprecedented. It won a war and gave up territory. The Philippines, its largest colony, got independence. The occupations wrapped up speedily, and only one, light, a set of lightly populated islands in Micronesia, led to annexation. Other territories, though they weren't granted independence, received new statuses. Puerto Rico became a commonwealth which ostensibly replaced a coercive relationship with a consenting one. Hawaii and Alaska, after some delay, became states, overcoming decades of racist determination to keep them out of the Union. This is the third act, and it raises a question. Why did the United States, at the peak of its power, distance itself from colonial empire? I explore that question at length because it's tremendously important, yet seldom asked. One part of the answer is that colonized subjects resisted, forcing empire into retreat. This happened both within the greater United States, leading to status changes in the four largest colonies, and outside it, 
where anti-imperialism impeded further colonial conquests. In fact, what I'll say about that, the Anti-Imperialist League and some of the other things that were going on, the America First before World War II, all that stuff was purely American. To have this idea of, we're America, we don't do empires, certainly factored into American policy. Though he does point to other things as well, race being one of them. We don't want to have all these non-white people in here. That was said about Mexico and other things too. You know, William Howard Taft, for example, of course, called the, little, the Filipino people's little brown brothers, which horribly racist statement. But that's, these are things that were said, right? So, but I mean, race certainly factored into all this. But America, when you look at Charles Lindbergh, this, we, don't, we don't get involved in foreign wars. That's not the American way. We don't acquire territory. That's not the American way. The Anti-Imperialism League, which was around from 1898 until World War I, Split on World War I, but certainly against all the acquiring all the territory and colonies and everything in this early 20th century. They were speaking out against this stuff. And you had people on the left and the right as part of that. You see, the American tradition is anti-empire. And I think that Imawar is saying it's not, but it really is in many ways. That's the core of the principle is against empire, though the political class will go get it. Another part has to do with technology. During the Second World War, the United States honed an extraordinary suite of technologies that gave its many, it many of the benefits of empire without having to actually hold colonies. Plastics and other synthetics, synthetics allowed it to replace tropical products with man-made substitutes. Airplanes, radio, and DDT enabled to move its goods, ideas, and people into foreign countries easily without annexing them. Similarly, the United States managed to standardize many of its objects and practices, from screw threads to road signs of the English language across political borders, again gaining influence in places it didn't control. Collectively, these technologies weaned the United States off the familiar model of formal empire. They replaced colonization with globalization. Globalization is a fashionable word. Again, think locally, act locally is what I say. This is think globally, act locally is the other side of it, right? So we're going to have this big global monster and we're just going to work here. We're We're going to recycle here in the United States because that's going to help the world. We're going to do what we can to help here because it's going to help the world. But what really is going on, I mean, these people want a world government. Globalization is a fashionable word, and it's easy to speak of it in vague terms, to talk of increasingly better technologies drawing a desperate world together. But those new technologies didn't just crop up. Many were developed by the U.S. military in a short burst of time in the 1940s with the goal of giving the United States a new relationship to territory. Dramatically, and in just a few years, the military built a world-spanning logistical network that was startling in how little it depended on colonies. It was also startling in how much it centered in the world's trade, transport, and communication on one country, the United States. This is really, I mean, if you look at what's going on in the world today, too, and where China stands and Russia, it's why China's going out and buying up large reserves of things like uh, 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 metals, Cobalt. They're buying up cobalt because they know if you can buy up all the cobalt reserves, what are you going to do? And they're doing this in Africa. What are you going to do? You got to build batteries. You got to have cobalt. Well, who's going to control that? China. So the United States is going to have to get this from China. China is bent on creating a Chinese global empire where they are the big boys and the United States is subservient. And of course, the way we're running our economy into the ground, that's entirely possible. It's entirely possible. 
Yet even this age of globalization, territory has not gone away. Not only does the United States continue to hold part of its colonial empire, containing millions, it also claims numerous small dots on the map. Besides Guam, American Samoa, the Northern Mariana Islands, Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, and a handful of minor outlying islands, the United States maintains roughly 800 overseas military bases around the world. 800 military bases. These tiny specks, Howland Island and the like, are the foundations of a U.S. world power. They serve as staging grounds, launch pads, storage sites, beacons, and laboratories. They make up what I call, building on a concept from the historian and cartographer Bill Rankin, a pointillist empire. Today, that empire extends all over the planet. None of this, however, not the large colonies, small islands, or military bases, have made much of a dent on the mainland mind. One of the truly distinctive features of the United States Empire is how persistently ignored it has been. Apart from a brief moment after 1898 when the country's imperial dimensions were on proud display, much of its history has taken place offstage. And this is, I show an image in my class, you know. Um, this is from the 1900 election, William McKinley. American, uh, American uh, flag has not been planted on, on any soil for territory, but for humanity's sake. And think about how the empire is often sold. We're doing this for the people. We're doing it for the downtrodden people. We're saving the Vietnamese from communism. We're saving the Koreans from communism. We're saving these Middle Eastern people from terrorism. That's what we're doing. It's all humanitarian. It's not about anything else. It's about that. This is it's worth explaining unique. The British weren't confused as to whether there was a British Empire. They had a holiday, Empire Day, to celebrate it. France didn't forget that Algeria was French. It is only the United States that has suffered from chronic confusion about its own borders. The reason isn't hard to guess. The country perceives itself to be a republic, not an empire. It's actually the title of Pat Buchanan's book. It was born in an anti-imperialist revolt and has fought empires ever since, from Hitler's thousand-year Reich and the Japanese Empire to the evil empire of the Soviet Union. It even fights empires in its dreams. Star Wars, a saga that started a re- with a rebellion against the Galactic Empire, is one of the highest-grossing film franchises of all time. I mean, again, this is, this is he points out exactly what's going on. Americans are uncomfortable with empire. They don't want to be, call- they, they don't want to be called imperialists. They don't like it because in the empire are the bad guys. Are we really the bad guys? Is the United States really the bad guy in all of this? Well, the imperialists certainly are. And that can be anywhere. That's the cultural imperialism. That's cancel culture. That's what that is. That's cultural imperialism. It's overseas imperialism. It's the left, essentially. It's pushing all of this. You look at who is driving these major wars, it's always been the more reform-minded side of the American political spectrum. Not always, but generally. Even George W. Bush was a progressive. This self-image of the United States as a republic is consoling, but it's also costly. Most of the cost has been paid by those living in the colonies, in its occupation zones, and around military bases. The logo map has relegated them to the shadows, which are a dangerous place to live. At various times, the inhabitants of the U.S. Empire have been shot, shelled, starved, interned, disposed, tortured, and experimented on. What they haven't been, by and large, as seen. The logo map carries a cost for mainlanders, too. It gives them a truncated view of their own history, one that excludes part of their country. It is an important part. As I seek to reveal, a lot has happened in the territories, occurrences highly relevant to mainlanders. The overseas parts of the United States have triggered wars, brought forth interventions, raised up presidents, and helped define what it means to be an American. Only by including them in the picture do we see a full portrait of the country, not as it appears in the 
fantasies, but as it actually is. Again, a great introduction to what's setting up to be the American Empire. So important to remember the American Empire. Because we have to think about this in our collective consciousness. It's, it's, it is why I talk about thinking locally and acting locally. Because that's going on. we got to break the cycle somewhere. And it has to be here. It has to be now in the local. It has to be getting involved in local government, local politics, trying to break the assimilators, the Borg. I mean, you think about Star Trek. It's the universe, It's the Federation of, of Planets, but who are the bad guys? The Borg, the assimilators, the Empire. We think of ourselves as anti-imperial. It just, it's just natural. But yet we are the Empire. It's the American presidency, an elected king, an elected emperor, so to speak. Was it more accurate to say it's an emperor, not a king? Perhaps. He bring, began this chapter with a discussion of, uh, or this introduction with a discussion of World War II and how Roosevelt left out the Philippines, which were also attacked on the day on December 7, 1941. But there weren't a, technically, quote-unquote, Americans that were killed in the Philippines. But we know Americans were killed on board battleships, Good boys from Massachusetts, South Carolina, you know, California, wherever it was. These boys were killed, and we got to avenge them. But who cares about these Filipinos? Doesn't matter about them. So he left that out. Because Americans don't even know where the heck the Philippines is most of the time. Where is that? I don't know. It's out there somewhere. So I like this book. Again, you got to get through some of the stuff with it, but I love the introduction to it in particular. But I mean, he gets into all these things, why Americans have this disconnect between their role as as part of an empire. We don't want we're the only empire in history that doesn't really want to be an empire. And the British loved it. They love abusing other <laughs> countries. They loved it. The French did too. All the European powers did. These are we're going to colonize these people and we're going to make them better. Americans had that impulse for a time, but then they couldn't do that anymore because of essentially uh, the influence of leftism, one of the things, you know, but uh, there, were, there was a guilt around it. And because of the history of the United States as being against empire, of independence. Something different. All right. Hope you enjoyed this particular episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.